The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Well, good morning. If you have uh, Bibles, let's go ahead and grab those and go to the book of Hosea. I know it's going to take you a minute to find that one, uh, but if you don't know where that is, just go to the table of contents and that will uh, help you out. Good morning. My name's Eric, and we're going to be starting a new series today called uh, God in the Ruins. Have you, ever, have you ever got to that point in your life where you're saying, I'm ruined? You ever had that moment? L- listen, I, so I've done a lot of I am ruined moments. Anybody else? I remember I, I grew up in a world where uh, my life kind of revolved around sports. And what I mean by that is from a very young age, I started uh, playing soccer, and then uh, a little bit after that, I started playing t-ball and soccer, and then a little bit after that, I played uh, baseball and soccer and basketball, and and soccer is the child sport, Uh, and so you could play that from a very little age. Uh, But then I I started uh, getting involved in other sports like basketball. I played football in the backyard. I played uh, roller hockey, and so anybody else just say, you know what, I I love playing sports uh, as a kid. And so here I was, I was in middle school, uh, and uh, we were, uh, it was in the summer, and I was, uh, I was bored one day, this was before Wi-Fi, okay? Uh, and so uh, when you're bored as a kid, there's this thing called playing outside. You ever heard of that? Okay, if you don't know what that is, just Google it, all right, playing outside. And so when you're bored, you you just go outside and you find something to do, amen? And so I was there and my buddy was there and we're like, okay, let's go go find something to do outside. And so we get into the garage and we start rummaging through stuff and we're like, oh, look, here's these golf balls and these golf clubs. That's an awesome idea. Let's do that. And so because, you know, I'm an athlete, I'm like, oh, I've hit a golf ball before. I know what this is like. Uh, and, and so uh, we, we get the golf balls. We get out in the front yard, and I live in a neighborhood. Anyone live in a neighborhood? Okay, you see where this is going. Anyway, okay, so I live in this house, and then there's my neighbor's house, and then there's like a two-acre free lot with this giant uh, water tower in it. Okay, and so uh, we thought, you know what is a good idea is let's, let's, let's hit these golf balls at this steel water tower because when it hits the water tower, it's going to make this awesome clanging sound and it's going to echo through the neighborhood. How many of you think that's a good idea? That sounds awesome, right? So behind the water tower is this like cornfield. Uh, that's before the whole subdivision was developed. Anyway, uh, and so I'm like, oh, let me show you how to do it. I'm going to show you how this, how this big dog eats right here. And so I, I, uh, I, I tee it up, right? I'm, I'm right next to my driveway. And I tee it up, and I get my, my stance down. Maybe I should turn like this so you guys can see. I get my stance down, a little waggle here. And, and you know, my friend's standing behind me like, watch, watch how you do this, okay? And then I have this beautiful swing, and I, I hit a burner. You know what that is? A burner is like a low shot that's like three or four feet off the ground that just is a zipper, right? And so I hit this ball, right off the ground to the right into my neighbor's bedroom window. <laughs> it was beautiful. It just wasn't straight. <laughs> and so in that moment, I'm like, I'm ruined. <laughs> he looks at me, I look at him, and we don't say a word. 
But we both immediately pick up the ball balls, pick up the bag, throw them back in the garage, and run back into the house. Because that's what you do when you're in middle school. You thought I would take ownership of it, take responsibility, pay for the window, that's what... No. My mom comes home. She confronts me. And instead of owning up to it, I try to hide it. And I use the three words that are, can be used infinitely in a row. I don't know. Eric, what happened to the neighbor's window? I don't know. Well, they found one of the golf balls in their bedroom through their window. Their window's messed up. How did that happen? I don't know. Were you out with your friend hitting golf balls today? I don't know. But there's a divot right by the driveway that's like pointing straight to their house. How did that get there? I don't know. And so, and so just even from a young age, what we do is we have these I'm ruined moments, but we try to like hide it. And we try to pretend like it's not that big of a deal, or we try to pretend like it's, it's something else, or we just play it off like, I don't know. And, and so here, here's, here's my point is, is, is I broke someone's possessions. And, and rightly so, I should be held responsible for that. But when it comes to our relationship with God, and when it comes to God saying, hey, I want you to walk in this direction, I want you to go this way, stay away from these things, I want you to walk in these things. And, and so what we do in our relationship with God, there comes moments that we realize that we don't measure up. That we, that we either do what God says not to do, or we don't do what God tells us to do. And, and so we don't measure up, and, and, and if we're honest, we, we compare ourselves, we look at ourselves before God, and we would say, I am ruined, not because... We've simply broken God's commandments, but really because we've broken God's heart. And we say, oh, well, if I just break God's window, then it'll be taken care of, and no harm, no foul. But we need to realize that our brokenness before the Lord actually affects his heart. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians 7. This is the verse that you should put in your heart. It says, for godly grief, produces a repentance. And this repentance leads to salvation, life without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So there is a type of, of godly grief that God desires ultimately for us to feel when we come to this moment before him that says, I am ruined, that actually leads to life. The life path that God has for you is not simply to remove you from the grief of your sin, but rather to allow you to feel what's called godly grief versus worldly grief because godly grief produces something, namely salvation, namely life without regret. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah experienced a, 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 a moment where he's before the Lord. It says, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord, and he was sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, 
and the train of his robe, it filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Those are angels. And each of these angels, they had six wings. Two, they covered their face. Two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is woe is me for I am ruined I am lost I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts when we stand before the holy of holies, if we stand before the king of kings and the lord of lords, our natural response is not to boast about how awesome we are, but rather to fall to our knees. Say, woe is me. I'm ruined. Have you ever had that I'm ruined moment before God? Has the Holy Spirit ever shown himself to you in such a way that it shines light on who you really are, and you fall to your face and say, ruined. So today we're going to start going through the minor prophets. And it's called God in the Ruins. And these Old Testament books are not called minor because they're unimportant. They're probably what you skip over in your Bible reading. But these minor prophets are written to us in a time where Israel has turned their back on God and God lays out the plan of restoration for his people who find themselves in a position of, I'm ruined. We're ruined. Our land is broken. And so all of it actually points to the coming of the Messiah. Israel turned their back on God. We turn our back on God. Jesus comes. He would heal and he would redeem all that sin has ruined. And the good news is that if you're here this morning, if you ever feel like you've gone too far, if you ever feel like you're in ruins, if you ever feel like you don't know how this thing is going to turn out for good. If you look at your world scope, if you're on social media, if you just simply open your eyes and you see the world that we live in and you think we are ruined. There's no way we can escape this. There's no way we can get out of this. God doesn't leave or forsake his people in the time of ruin. If you've ever found yourself just simply losing hope or say life is impossible, if you've ever felt like I'm ruined, if you've ever asked, God, how are you going to redeem my life? I've messed it up so bad. God, how are you going to redeem this relationship? It's gone so far down. God, how are you going to heal our land of people who have forsaken you? Then listen, this series is just for you. Hosea is the first book that we're going to get into, and the prophet Hosea sets the stage for all that's going to be coming after him, and Hosea is one of the most riveting illustrations 
of God's scandalous love to his people who are actually just like us. And I say scandalous because from the first pages of Genesis all the way through to the last of Revelation, God continues to pursue. God continues to chase down. God continuously chases a people who constantly and consistently turn to other things besides him for hope. And so let's just, let's just look how it starts out. In Hosea chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 2. It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go. Everyone say go. This is, this is what God tells him to do. I want you to go, and I want you to take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, let me, let me pause right there. He says, I, I want you to go, and I want you to marry a woman who's going to be unfaithful to you. Why would God call him to do something like that? It's because, he says, I want you to see that the land and my people do the exact same thing. He says, I want you to go. I want you to have children. I want you to understand this. The land commits whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went, and he took Gomer the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, can we just simply agree that Hosea probably got the worst assignment of all the prophets? I mean, we just read Isaiah, and Isaiah gets to see the throne room of God. Now, even though he preaches and no one listens to him, he actually gets to see God. Right? And so Ezekiel, he gets to see dry bones come alive. Daniel interprets dreams. Zechariah sees vision. Hosea gets to marry a prostitute. And so spiritual adultery is the primary biblical illustration of our sin. You realize that? This is a gripping analogy. I mean, it's not a fun one, but it's true. Because, because there is not a more hurtful behavior. There's few things that tear your heart away like adultery. Because adultery is not just an injustice like breaking a window or stealing. But it's a betrayal of the heart. It's, it's a squandering of love that is in a relationship. Let me ask you, is that how you see your sin before the Lord? Do you see it in a way that it actually breaks God's heart, fractures a relationship? It doesn't just break a command, it fractures your relationship. Adultery is when what is rightfully yours is being given to someone else. God created each one of us to know him, to love him, enjoy him. Because God knows that that is where the fullness of life comes. But what happens is we all say, you know what, I don't want that love. I don't want that relationship. I would rather want other relationships other than you, and the Bible calls that sin. Interestingly, the primary sin that God identifies with Israel is the one that she looks to other nations for help. 
looks to other nations for hope. So when things get hard or things get bad, what Israel does is they go down to Assyria and say, hey, can you help us? They go down to Egypt and say, hey, we're in ruin here and we need help. Can you help us? Now, there's nothing wrong with gathering your friends around and asking for help, but it only comes a problem where you forsake God who's ready to help you and you look to other solutions. So it may not sound bad, but realistically, the reality is that something else has replaced God as their trust. And that's what we do. Our primary sin is that we put other things in the place of God. What are the things in your life that, if you were honest, you've put in place of God? Where do you turn when you're worried? I know anybody ever worry in here? What do you, what do, you do when you're worried, do you patiently look to God? Do you hold true to God's promises and wait upon the Lord, allowing him to reveal to you wisdom and insight and direction? Or do you take things into your own hands? Any fixers out there? Oh, yeah, that's me. Oh, this is the problem? Oh, well, let me figure out a solution. Let me figure out a direction in which we can fix this problem. And what happens is God becomes the last resort rather than the first. So where do you turn when you're stressed? Anyone ever stressed? Where do you go? What do you do? You, 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 you go to food? Exercise? Work? You shop? What relieves you of that stress and brings comfort? You overeat, you overwork, you overspend. The primary sin is not overeating or excess spending. It's the fact that we turn our hearts to something else for comfort besides the presence and the promises of God. That's what God wants to show us. What do you look to when you struggle with financial security? I know finances are a big deal. Money is a big deal. One of the reasons that scripture actually makes such a big deal about tithing your money uh, is because tithing, by the way, is a fancy word for giving your first 10% to God. And the, the, one of the reasons why scripture makes it such important for us to, to give is because financial giving reveals who or what we really trust for your future. You realize that? It's not just a commandment. It's saying, I want you to trust me. So we are to be a people who trust God with our present and with our future, which means, which means God wants us to joyfully and willingly trust him with the thing that most people hold so dear to their heart, namely their money. And so this is a way, tithing is a way of saying, I want to trust you. I trust you with my future. That's him calling right now. Let's get it. I gave you four rings. But, but hear me. Because if we're honest, and, and our primary trust is in money, and money brings you security, and money defines your worth, and money defines your value, then of course you can't give that away. That's my future. That's my foundation. 
That's my building block for my life. This is how I'm going to get ahead. This is how I'm going to be seen as valuable. This is how I'm going to be seen as worthy. This is how my peers are going to like me. I can't give this away. I need this for me. And money reveals your heart. Our adulterous behavior is not our unwillingness to give 10%, but rather a heart of trust that should be given to God is actually being given to money. And so this is not a message about money. This is a message about our hearts. God wants us to be joyful, secured in him, delighting in him, confident in him. Our trust is in him, but we all, like Israel, like this prostitute, sought other things in something or someone else. If you're taking notes, write this one down. Our sin doesn't just break God's commandments, but rather it breaks his heart. It's the relationship that is fractured. And when we realize this, we come to the point in our lives where we say, I am ruined. And where that truth falls on your hearts, we will receive him, we will repent, we will find salvation that leads to life without regret. Or what we can do is we can very easily harden our hearts, we will continue in our ways of adultery, chasing other lovers, thinking that somewhere down the line that will satisfy, because we're young and we're smart and we know everything, we know that somewhere down there is the hope that we're all looking for that would finally satisfy our hearts and we'd say, what's the big deal? And what happens, eventually, we'll separate ourselves, we'll hide ourselves, because we'll feel shame, or we'll feel guilt, or we'll feel this, this, this confrontation, and we'll say, I don't know, all because of shame. Look at what happens in chapter 2, verse 5. For she said, I will go after other lovers who will give me bread and my water and my wool, my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore, God says, I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her path. So she shall pursue other lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not Find them. Then she will say, I will go and I will return to my first husband, for it is better for me then than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain. I was the one who gave her the wine. I was the one that gave her the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which she used. Eventually, she leaves Hosea. She searches for lovers outside of him. What's going to provide for me best? Who's going to take care of me the most? And so to make matters worse, the lovers abuse her. They don't love her. They rather use her. And so yes, she continues to pursue them and love them and give her life to them. And, and in all of her pursuit, God says, listen, I'm never 
going to allow anything outside of me to satisfy your heart. I'm going to put thorns in your way. I'm going to make your path crooked. I'm going to allow you to chase them, but they will never satisfy you. Listen to me. Every lover and every desire that you and I, we set our hearts upon outside of the Lord Jesus Christ can only satisfy you temporarily. You seek lasting love, but you never find it. You might find love, but everlasting. You, you pursue comfort or pleasure, and you never find it. It's always temporary. It's why you have this pleasure feeling, and then when that runs out, you gotta find another one. Look at how it goes. Verse 9, therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season and I will take away my wool and my flax which were to cover her nakedness and now I will uncover her lewdness in sight of her lovers and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. God says, I'm going to unveil you before your lovers. You're gonna be naked, you're gonna be in broad daylight, and everyone's gonna ask, hey, isn't that Hosea's wife? What's she doing over there? Hey, aren't you, aren't you supposed to be a Christian? What are, you, what are you doing in that? And it's going to come to light, and she's gonna be in that moment where she finds herself saying, I'm ruined. But listen, if you're taking notes, write this one down. The love of Christ continues to pursue us in our ruin. Look at how it goes. Verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and I will bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her, and there I will give her her vineyards, and make the valley of Ancher a door of hope. And there shall she answer in those days of her youth as in the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal or my master. God says, I'm going to bring you to a place of wilderness. I'm going to take you into the desert where you're finally so tired and so exhausted from chasing and wanting and desiring. And in that desert place, I'm going to speak tenderly to you. Listen, God doesn't leave you. God leads us. God doesn't leave you. He leads you into a place where you absolutely need him. You are where you are for a reason. And listen to me, you've been led there for a reason. But honestly, some of you, some of you, you're not tired enough yet. You're not weary enough yet. 
You think that somehow you can manipulate some magic lock that somehow that you can find joy outside of the Lord. And you're like, well, uh, well, wait until I get this. Wait till I get to this level. Just wait and see. When I get here, then I'll be happy. Finally, when I get this lover, then I'll be satisfied. Finally, when I get this, I'll have arrived. And you'll spend your whole life chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing when God says, would you just know Put obstacles in your path. They will never satisfy you. So maybe you can come to that place in the desert where I can speak to you. And in that place, God doesn't say, God doesn't say, listen, I told you so. I tried to warn you. He doesn't shame her. He doesn't guilt her. He doesn't point out all her bad decisions and all of her sins. She says, I'm going to take her into the desert so that when she's so thirsty and so exhausted trying to find everything that would satisfy, in that moment, I'm going to speak tenderly to her. And I will increase her vineyards. That is, uh, I will restore her joy in me. And God says in that moment when you feel alone and when you feel empty, when you feel like your life is ruined, in that moment, that's when God will speak tenderly. In his presence, he will restore your joy because in that moment, you'll stop calling him master and start calling him husband or lover. And some of you today, you've been hiding, been chasing, You've been putting on a very good front on Sundays. But honestly, on the inside, you're just in ruin. Today, God wants to meet you in your ruin. He wants to speak. He wants to restore your joy. Look at the promise that he makes. Verse 19. That I will betroth you to me forever. That's wedding language. I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Okay, listen to me. Many people in church think that they are the bride of Christ because they made a vow or they prayed a prayer. But on the inside, you feel empty and ashamed because of your ongoing pursuit of other lovers to satisfy you. But hear me. The only vow that has the power to hold you fast is the vow that Christ makes us, not the vow you make. The only power that's going to redeem us is the vow that Christ makes to his bride and says, I will not let you. Like Gomer, we all, at one time or currently, 
have been unfaithful. But God who loves us without limits relentlessly continues to move to lead us to these I am ruined moments because in that moment we'll finally surrender and he will speak to us and he makes a promise to us and he says, you will be mine, I will be yours, I have you in my hand and nothing can snatch you out of my hand. Look in chapter 3. The Lord said to me, go again. First time it was go, now it's go again. Again, go again. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes and raisins. The Lord again speaks to Isaiah. He says, go get her. Go get her. Again? Yeah, again. How many times? You don't know how many times I've done this. The Lord says, go again. Go get her back. Hosea loved a woman who was unfaithful. She, he marries this woman. He has three kids with this woman. She leaves him. She cheats on him. And she continues to do it over and over and over and over again. And God says to Hosea, go again. Keep in mind something here, my friend. Hosea is a real person. That's a fable. Fairy tale. Hosea is a real man. Can you imagine what would be going through his mind again? You want me to go again? She humiliates me. She turns from me. She scorned me. She's embarrassed me. She ripped my heart out so many times. I don't know if I can go again. I don't know if I have it in me. Go again. Go get her again. God feels that way about us. Going again and again and again. Look in verse 2. So I bought her. Everyone say bought. I didn't just go find her. I didn't just go looking for her. I bought her. For 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lechless of barley, which is a half a homer. A homer and a half of barley. 15 shekels of silver, homer and a half of barley. Let me ask you this question. Where does Hosea find his wife? He finds her lined up on a stage. Probably tied up. Stripped down. Helpless, crowds gathering around her, wanting to buy her, wanting to use her. And Hosea sees her up on the platform. And he could have said, no way. She's not worth it. There's no way. 
But he knew that if he wanted her, he would have to pay the price. And so what did he do? He bought her. The Bible has a word for that. It's called redeem. Everyone say redeem. To buy someone out of slavery, to buy someone out of trouble, to begin to clothe them and bring them back. This is called redeem. To redeem means to buy back, to release with a payment or a ransom, and he pays the price. And he pays the price to get back what is already his. How much? 15 shekels of silver and some barley. Listen to me now. Listen. Purchasing Gomer broke Hosea financially. Fifteen shekels, probably equivalent to three to four thousand dollars. It broke him financially. Listen, it literally cost him everything. How do you know that? Well, scholars say that the going price for a woman, a slave in those days, was thirty shekels of silver. But what did he pay? Fifteen. He didn't have enough. He had to find some other stuff around the house. He had to find some other things that he had. Anything that would be of any value. He only has 15 shekels. He says, this is all I have. I don't have any more. And so I have to pay the rest in other things. The fact that Hosea could only come up with 15 shekels and that he had to pay the rest in barley indicates that he didn't have enough. He didn't have what it takes. The cost to redeem her back absolutely broke him. It emptied him of everything he had. Now listen, by the way, Hosea didn't have to buy her. Leviticus 20 tells us that a man in this situation would have every right to divorce her, to leave her, even to stone her, and he would be totally justified. But he bought her. He could have easily walked away. In the same way, God would be completely justified to simply leave us in our ruin. But he doesn't. He goes above and beyond what the law would require in order to buy us. His love drove him beyond a legal requirement because of the great love with which he loved us. This points us to Jesus. Jesus came to redeem those he loves. We're lined up, we're naked, we're ashamed, we're covered in guilt, we're saying, I am ruined, and it would cost Jesus Christ everything to get us back. Jesus poured out his own blood upon the cross. It would cost him rendering heaven, coming to us, living the perfect life, dying the death, spit on, mocked, beard ripped from his face, crown of thorns on his head, nailed in his hands, and he says, you're worth it. I'm going to redeem my people. Jesus took the wages of sin in his body, paying the price for every adulterous behavior that we could ever have if we would just simply receive it. 
We would simply receive it and trust him by faith and trust in his love and treasure his love above every other love. We would receive the payment of Christ and then we would come to this place where we would completely surrender to him. But please do me a favor. Please do not patronize God and simply say, oh, I have a half-hearted commitment. After what he's done, after what he went through, what I've put him through, my worship, my life is so mundane, it's so lethargic that no one who would look at me would say that I'm in love with Jesus. But he's worthy of so much more, amen? And his death that Jesus paid to redeem. Hebrews 9, it puts it like this. Jesus' death redeemed us. He bought us so that we could receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. Titus 2, it says that the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from all of our lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his very own. Now hear me, because there's nothing, there's nothing that we do to deserve that. There's nothing we do to earn that. There's nothing that we do that we could finally present ourselves in splendor before God. There's nothing you could do to clean yourself up. There's nothing you could do to rid yourself of your shame. There's nothing you could do to make right your wrongs. There's no righteous or religious action or behaviors that would somehow merit Christ dying for you. Christ came to us when we were helpless. And his salvation he offers by his power and by his grace. Let me close with some warnings and a word of hope. Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children. For the Lord has controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. There's no knowledge of God in the land. All there is is just swearing and lying and murder and stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. And this goes on for six chapters. Warning, and warning, and warning, and warning. Those who continue to reject the love of God in Jesus Christ, those who continue to pursue other lovers, other providers, other comforters, will reap a whirlwind of destruction and judgment. He continues in chapter 11, I'll just paraphrase for it. God says, the more I call to you, the more you run away. The more you would give yourself to other lovers. Even though it was I, your Lord, who taught you to walk, it was I who brought you into my arms, it was I who, feel, uh, who healed you, I who fed you, I poured out upon you kindness and love, but still, you would not return to me. And then finally, verse 8, and I'll paraphrase it for you, God says, how can I let you go? My heart boils within me. My compassion for you grows warm and tender before you. I will show you mercy. I am God. I am not a man. God says, I am the Holy One, and I will withhold my wrath that you deserve. Now listen to me. 
what is amazing is that you and I could probably picture a relationship in which we would sacrifice this. Amen? Parents out there? Parents, would you not go to the ends of the earth for your children? That's why we love the movie Taken. We all see ourselves, yep, I would do that. For our children, we can imagine doing this. For our spouses, we can imagine, oh yeah, there's nothing that I would, I would allow to, to ha- happen to you. I would, I would chase you down, I would go after you, I would do anything. We can imagine some of our closest relationships and we would say, you know what, I would sacrifice uh, in a love like that. But the scripture tells us, hear me, outside of faith in Jesus Christ, listen, You are not his children, and you are not his bride. Or rather, we're enemies. We are enemies of God. Objects of God's wrath. And Romans 2 tells us that because of our hard, impotent hearts, we are storing up wrath. For ourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Listen, we can imagine doing all of this for someone we love. We can imagine doing all this for our children. We can imagine doing all this for our spouses. But can you imagine doing it for those who are your enemies? Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still Before you did anything right or wrong. While you were shamed. While you were in ruins. Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved from him. From the wrath of God. For while we were. What's that word? Enemies. While we were sinners, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death in his son much more. Now that we are reconciled, we're put back together in this relationship. Shall we be saved by his life? More than that also, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. This relationship is restored because of Jesus. Enemies, wrath, now restored. Because of Jesus Christ. Here's the takeaway. God did not give up on Israel when Israel failed him. God does not give up on you when you fail him. Some of you need to hear that. God does not give up on you when you fail him. Don't miss that Hosea's love was offered to a woman while she was committing sin against him. While she was an enemy of his, she did not free herself. She did not clean herself up first. She did not do something to somehow merit the love of Hosea. Listen to me. This teaches us how we can be set free from the bondage of your sin and your shame. Most people think they have to clean themselves up. They have to do a bunch of religious things. 
honorable things before God, to somehow make ourselves pleasing before God. And so if we do enough good things that God would love us and God would receive us because we're worthy of love, which is true in every religion of the world other than Christianity. Don't you know it's through your effort, it's through your merit, it's through your religious behavior, it's through your reward, it's through your moral behavior. I'm a good person. Oh, then you must be lovely before God. But the Christian gospel is that you have Christ dying for the unrighteous, Christ redeeming the ungodly, and Christ absorbing the wrath of God toward his enemies that we all deserve. God shows that his acceptance and his forgiveness and his grace and his kindness, and that grace and kindness leads us to repentance. About to close right here. If you have notes, take this out. The love of Christ is power, not a reward. Receive the love of Christ first, and that love powers us to walk in his ways. God's love is the power that liberates us from bondage, not the reward for liberating ourselves. You cannot liberate yourself. But God loves you. And that is the power of liberation. The gospel is that Christ offered himself to you complete forgiveness Complete righteousness, the gospel of grace, is not an outside-in righteousness. It's an inside-out righteousness. Listen, your sin, your bad habits, your struggles, your ongoing temptations that you give into day in and day out, your ongoing pursuit of other lovers outside of Jesus Christ, none of those things ultimately condemn you, but only your unwillingness to receive the gracious, unearned, undeserved sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you. We will fall. We do fall. God's love is first. That love leads us to repentance. That leads to salvation. That leads to life without regret. It's not life without regret that I'm loved. I'm loved. And I repent. And I am saved. And now I live without shame. That's the God. God we are a people of unclean lips and we live among a people of unclean lips and I pray that today our hearts and our eyes would see the Lord in his word by your spirit through your grace. God, would you lead us right now to our knees to say, I am ruined without you. But with you, I am loved. In you, I am redeemed. In you, I can be honest with where I am. In you, I can repent. In you, I can find salvation. And in you, I can live a life without regret.
Oh, Lord Jesus, would you set us free today that it is by your blood, by your cross, that we can find life. Lord, forgive us. Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. Lord, wash us. Lord, would you wash us? every eye closed and every head bowed, I'm just going to ask you right where you sit. Are you struggling with ongoing waywardness? Are you looking to other things to satisfy? And I'm asking you this morning, not if there are things, but what is the thing for you? If when I ask that question, you immediately think of the one thing that you chase, one thing you love and the one thing you want more than anything else, the one thing that seems to ensnare you that you need to be set free of, would you right now take that one thing, would you just simply give it to the Lord? Would you surrender it to God? Would you no longer, like Ephesians says, grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but rather give your sin to Him? Right now, right where you are, would you cry out from your heart of hearts, forgive me. Wash me. Redeem me and set me free. Just right where you are, just say that in your own voice to God. And let him speak tenderly your heart. Jesus, we need you. Jesus, I want you. Jesus, I love you. Because you first loved me. But I want to do...